Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jim Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Secorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I'm Jen, and with me tonight are Mark. Hello, hello. And Bob. That would be me. Uh, there is no replacement, that is correct. <laughs> Hard as you try. <laughs> <laughs> tonight... Uh, on this episode, we're going to be discussing Sign of the Labyrinth by Margaret St. Clair. Bob, give us that beautiful synop. Like others who withstood the pandemic, Sam Sewell lives in a subterranean shelter. The vast catacombs were built before the military's biological weapon leaked out, killing nine out of ten people and leaving the survivors so traumatized that they can barely tolerate each other's company. So... It's quite peculiar that some government agents seem to think that Sam lives with a woman, Despoina, who is suspected of conducting germ warfare. Pressured by the agents to locate her, Sam must literally go underground to discover the truth about a hidden world of witchcraft and secret rituals. This Wiccan-themed science fiction novel was cited by Gary Gygax as an inspiration for Dungeons & Dragons, and sharp-eyed gamers will certainly see similarities between St. Clair's world and Gygax's Castle Greyhawk, with its labyrinthine setting of multiple levels connected by secret passages. <laughs> Should we start with Mark this time? What was your overall take on this? I was intrigued by the mega dungeon aspects to it because I think it clearly some something we're going to talk about a, a lot. You know, when we say what, how does it relate to inspiring D and D? The rest of it, I was not really enthralled by. I think honestly, this was something I read in in a day, but not because I was trying to not put the book down. It was because I was struggling to get it done for the podcast. Probably <laughs> keep your eyes open, Warrior Mark. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it had some interesting elements, but I think we've seen the same kind of dystopian setting before. But Like in more... other books of hers? No, in, in, <laughs> well, and maybe, maybe in other books, but just in other impendents in, you know, Saber Hagen's book, you know, some of the other post-apocalyptic novels that have really done it better, that are just more captivating from a narrative and storytelling point of view. That being said, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of sort of food for thought here. The thing that makes this a little bit different is that the Holocaust is so recent. Humanity is still psychologically traumatized by it and that it's unexplained, right? Why people can't come into contact with each other or it causes so much pain, but it's a neat thing to play off of. And things like that make it, a, you know, a little interesting. But, you know, overall, I don't know, it just, it just didn't captivate me, like I said. So I don't know. What do you guys think? I don't blame you a whole lot on that one, actually. <laughs> I felt it was very similar to The Shadow People, which incidentally was the first book we reviewed for 
this podcast. And the fact that on the back of each of her books, the blurbs do not cry out the joyousness of her writing. It's the, look, a lady wrote this. (laughs) This is a woman writing sci-fi. You must read it because women are are creative. And I'm like... Uh, well, uh, to be fair, uh, at the time, that was a really big uh, deal to yeah. have a woman writing sci-fi. I mean, the, but not it was so, so male-dominated. Yeah, I think the, the back club are burb. But creativity only goes so far when it's almost regurgitating the last book we just read. To be, to be fair, The Shadow People is something that she wrote years after she wrote this one. So I really? found, yes, I found this interesting in that this sort of felt like a spiritual predecessor to The Shadow People or maybe the other way around. It could so easily have been shades of the same. Oh, so you know, that The Shadow People, we've got why? the 1960s and the uprising and the government and the, and the weird robots and everything taking over up above. And okay, the so fairy this could below. be a prequel. Okay. Well, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't link it that hard. I wouldn't link it so hard as to call it a prequel so much as maybe this was her exploring some of those concepts that were later furthered in the Shadow People. That said, I think it was pretty much split into three parts. And the beginning was much more gripping than the middle or the end. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm with you, Mark. See, now, I didn't find it a slog at all. First of all, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, St. Clair, when she was writing this, was doing a lot of research into witchcraft, like Gardnerian Wicca and things of that nature. She met Raymond Buckland, who just recently passed, even though I wasn't aware he was still alive. (laughs) Um, And he is the person that eventually initiated she and her husband into Gardnerian Wicca. The piece is considered to be a very important piece of occult fiction and pagan fiction. So it's interesting to see it in Appendix N in that aspect, especially knowing that the Gygaxes were Jehovah Witnesses. To me, that is absolutely a fascinating little tidbit. It certainly gives you a big, broad overview of Wicca spiritualism and rituals. And, you know, it, it feels very authentic from that aspect, much more so than I think any other work I've read. It's definitely very pro the side of naturalism, very pro the side of humanity versus technology on the side of the wicked mentality of overcoming, you know, those obstacles that are placed in front of them by the people who are in that kind of positions of power. And so I I thought that was pretty interesting, but also red is just very, uh, I don't know how to say maybe propagandizing or trying too hard, trying too hard. Yeah. Both this and the shadow people have a very strong counterculture vibe to them in that the person writing them you can easily see margaret st Clair out on the street fist race in the air preaching against the power and i could totally see that and that is a very i think a very valid point that people need to keep in mind when they go into this this definitely has a very specific point of view But if you're looking to bring more flavor to druidic characters or clerics of nature in DCC, the tidbits that she draws from Wicca that are in this book really kind of play to that strength. But yeah, she totally distrusted the government. And uh, and I I think that there's only sort of the semi-explained social apocalypse in in all of her, in in both of the books that we've read. I won't say all of her books. We've read two out of like six or seven. But uh, the book is easy to read, but what strikes me is there's almost a vagueness to it. Reading this book gave me the same feeling as trying to remember a dream, in that there's 
there's little bits of details, but it's all sort of flowing and surreal, and so it's hard to really grab on to any specific points and moments without them just sort of washing past you. I mean, that's sort of falls into the first person narrative is that really representing sam's point of view to the extent that he is throughout parts of the novel clearly in kind of a dream fugue state or hallucination oh state. yeah well, and things like that, that. <laughs> and if that's intentional that's pretty wonderful writing you know to say i'm going to make this purposely vague because the narrator is not a trusted narrator in that sense i mean it, it, to me it doesn't read quite like that but it does I that, think back those, that. those were the worst parts to try to get through for me. Yeah, I think it, to me, it's not, it read more like shortcuts than it did <laughs> you know, that's, that's fascinating. For me, the hallucination sequences were also kind of difficult to work my way through. But for me, the reason that they were so difficult to work through was because they were so, in my experience, very spot on. Um, hallucinations don't often make a lot of sense and they've got sort of that weird dreamlike quality running through these that if i spent six hours digesting the four pages of the hallucination it would probably have a lot of meaning but i didn't and i don't think the average reader will so it left me with this feeling that there was more there under the surface and and some of it was not even really buried. Some of it was explained later. Oh, well, these people with these animal heads are really these people wearing these masks, and you encountered them in the past. There's a strong reincarnation theme, which yeah, there's I more think of the was shared handled... memory. Yeah. Yeah, I think that oh, was yeah. probably handled better in Creep Shadow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's there, and it is so very of the time. I mean, this, this is 1963 in a nutshell, I think. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, at first I was like, is she trying to be punny with the FBY? I, I've heard that used as an FBY bother kind of thing. So I, I wonder. the Federal Bureau of Yeast. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> And that was the weird thing that really struck me. And if you want to talk about witchcraft connections, you know, since the majority of witchcraft uh, hysterias can generally be traced back to ergot poisoning, which, of course, is coming from grains. Here we've got... Here we have this whole thing where there's been this yeast-based plague that has, has swept through, and it struck me as such a strange concept. I've never really thought about it, but yeasts are, are present in the air all around us. But who thinks of... I, that? That's sort of a, a special <laughs> leap. I mean, that is... You know, if you want gonzo, I think killer yeast is uh, is gonzo. Uh, I just... There in and of itself, I was actually sympathetic to the plagues, the... There were the two forms. There was the pulmonary, which had a, a longer gestation, and the neurolytic forms. And the neurolytic would drop a man within an hour of exposure. So reading that part, you do wince. You're like, oh, man, that, yeah, okay, that that's horrible. That That's a crappy way to go. <laughs> but at the same time, they body bag you and they throw you in a pile and the dead get buried via bulldozer. Which is really grim. But yes. That, <laughs> but that actually brought me to something that really bothered me about the book. And that is the plague, quotation marks, capital letter P, plague, <laughs> is spoken of in past tense while the infections are still there and there's still people there's the sowers who are intentionally infecting people but overall the plague is spoken of in the past tense and yet there are so many dead that they're still burying people with bulldozers 
that's one of the things that really struck an odd note with me. It's either, I mean, the plague ended on Tuesday, <laughs> or the plague's not over at all, and may, I mean, maybe that's meant to be the hint of unreliable narration, but I thought that was more of a case of you start writing something, and you've got some ideas at the beginning, and by the time you've gotten to the end, those ideas have drifted and changed, and that to me felt very semi-formed. I could see if you capitalized it, that would be the event. That would be like day one or day zero. And the the plague as a generality is still occurring. I don't know. That's actually a good point, though. Looking at it from an editor's standpoint, there was a lot that could have been fixed. But... Uh, <laughs> well, and just, I mean, the plague was supposed to be like five or ten years. I think it started ten years ago in the novel and then it lasted for five years. And then there's been this period of five years because Sam refers to it, you know, basically he's 25, it started ten years ago, and then... He went underground five years ago or whatever it was. And that's sort of like when the remaining one-tenth of humanity has been in this state. It almost started out as a different type of novel. That first person, he's so disaffected. He's so untapped yes. into his past narrative. That's part of his wicked identity that he evolves into. And that, to me, was almost too brief of an experience. You don't really get a lot of explanations on why a society sort of in this shuffling middling state without any type of control. You know, in the novel, the control or the authoritarianism doesn't happen until during the novel itself. It's not really present before that, but there's like people are going through these emotions. And that's sort of the bumping point. Parts of it are still so out there, though. Yes, she is your sister. So, of course, she is a Wiccan. And we can tell she's a Wiccan because it is in your blood. And Wait, what? No. <laughs> that, 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 that's like saying, well, uh, well, Mark, we, we did a DNA test and uh, you're 50% Catholic and 20% Lutheran, <laughs> but you've got some Hindi on your dad's side. No, that's not how things work. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> One of the things I found really, really interesting was when the guy from the FBI approaches poor Sam and says, we know you're hiding her. We know that you know where she is. Uh, yeah, it'd be great if we had some sort of backstory for that, but the reader is meant to be just as ignorant uh, as he is at the moment. But what really tickled me is that they described her, uh, her physical appearance, but never gave her an age. It was just this girl. But that turned out to be important later on. Right. I found it fascinating that it was described that way because everyone else was described as this age group. Right. Well, the thing is, though, if you look, different people kind of describe her in different ways, not physically, but in the way they speak of her. And it is very Virgin Mother Crone. It is the three facets, mm -hmm. the way she is described in various portions. And that for the time, was pretty deep. For today's standards, not really. In most, yeah, not so a much. Lot of people, a lot of people probably wouldn't, wouldn't even have, have, have caught that. But it 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 really was. So there's bizarre. so much. There, there's so much winding and labyrinthine. Uh, the storyline itself is almost a mega dungeon. Forget the setting for a second. Uh, there's just yeah. so many twists and turns and levels to it that this is not a good piece of casual reading. I'll say that. That's fair. We, we could move off the story itself and maybe move over to things to stat. Um, Sounds great. You mean like pulmonary yeast plagues and neurolytic yeast plagues? I thought the plagues were certainly worth statting up or doing write-ups for. I mean, DCC has a few diseases listed, just like there's a few poisons and a few curses. Mm -hmm. I thought something like that might be really interesting to give more of a fantasy feel to. Sort of like an ergot plague, really. I mean, these are things that you can whip through a farming community, for example. And, and no one be any the wiser. You could 
really write something around them. And yes, I'm talking about writing around yeast. Anyway. (laughs) They mentioned something. They said it was like a manometer, but it wasn't. The FBY had a device that allowed them to track... The little the, the little bits and pieces, the particles that are released by people. I mean, these days, police can go into a room with investigators and they can find trace DNA. And that's what this did. But it was a device and they could follow someone using that. I thought that was really neat and could be a really interesting device for MCC or Umerica or mm-hmm. any real tech setting. And they had the CO2 snow foggers and they were wiping out an entire level and freezing it over and these men in these suits with these hoses just letting loose with this carbon dioxide snow that that is definitely freezing everything yeah yeah well then it freezes blocks everything in and then all of that is going to melt fairly quickly and everybody's going to suffocate that was so sinister and so interesting something like that could even be converted to a spell you know carbon dioxide snow or ice You know, we think about spells where there's like Ice Storm and things like that throughout so many different fantasy games. Well, what if the ice isn't made from H2O? That simple little change can make all the That is very sinister. And then, and and we've talked about this before, witches is a full class. I mean, granted, the DCC witches write-up is essentially, they're Satanists. They have traffickings with devils. So these certainly are not witches in that particular sense. But certainly the more druidic style true witch is something that people have sort of looked for in a couple of different ways. You know, I want to be able to play a druid. Okay, well, you're going to play a cleric who who worships a nature spirit. But maybe something more along this line would be possible. Those were my thoughts. I really liked the personality that was introduced as the Lord of the Gates of Death and Life. And he hit Sam with this whip that inflicted hallucinations and this emotional trip and... Every strand of it, he felt something different. I was like, okay, that... Because it was, it was making him remember his past lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's pretty cool. And I, I like the idea of creating something... I know you guys are talking about spells and whatnot, but the men and monsters section, these NPCs or even foes have spell-like abilities. And so why not create some of these instead of being full-out spells, they could be spell-like abilities, but their training for them require that sensory deprivation. And so you could actually stumble upon some of your enemies while they're blindfolded or floating, while they're training to send their mind somewhere else. I I thought it was just kind of a fun idea. And of course, the cryogenic fungus. That That was one of my favorite, favorite parts of the book. Oh, is that the one that they were inhaling and it smelled like fresh mown grass and they were mm. tripping? It, yeah, interestingly enough, it was created by the same person who created the yeast. And <laughs> Yes, and it built up in your system. So it was something that... Was, right. That was actually a really neat concept. It had a cumulative concept. effect. Yeah, that was actually a really neat concept, that it never really left you. The more you were exposed to it, just the worse and faster it would act. That was really good. Yeah, because he said, okay, now can we run back and hit somebody else with it? No, because we've already been exposed, and its effect is cumulative. They won't suffer from it as badly as we will. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, okay. All right, Mark, hit us 
Because I, I, I know I forgot something about that cryogenic fungus. Well, I think that the key thing about it was that it, it was activated by cold. And I thought that was a really cool concept that, you know, you have this counter to those sinister men, the Brazil-like figures that are reducting the place with a cold spray. And the solution is, well, we have this fungus that activates upon being frozen. And I thought that was a kind of cool concept. And it gets faster and faster the colder it is, right? So it kind of grows towards that source of cold. And you could do that for different types of elements, something that's based off heat or something that's based off another type of... Of reaction that you are countering essentially what your enemy is throwing against you. Maybe that's the druid aspect, you know, or the alchemical aspect is that you have magic sort of being slung around and well, how do you fight that? Well, you come up with a chemical way of doing it. And I think that's kind of a cool concept for maybe the alchemical type class that has an array of spell-like abilities, but they're based on chemical um, reactions, which would be kind of a fun fun playoff of a magic class that's more uh, alchemically based. Yeah, and, and if I recall, when it was activated, it just kind of expanded and filled the area like a... Yeah, like snow I, or like, I, like ice crystals, yeah. I, I, I was almost picturing that, that expanding foam, the spray foam. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it just kind of filled the whole hallway. <laughs> there's and i think everybody's caught on there's a few spells that were described that were pretty neat the double sight that's used by sam which would make for an interesting either ability or a write-up this is where he's looking into objects and it almost seemed more like an ability for that yeah, yeah exactly it's a recovered ability in a sense that he's he's suddenly aware of and then he doesn't really know how to do it again until maybe he has to get retrained in it there's the idea of illusion that's hard to maintain but it's it's very subtle you know changing your age to destroy distract people about who you are. You, you seem like you're just this doddering old woman, but if you look closely and you penetrate that illusion, you recognize that person for who they really are. That sort of is a neat cantrip version of invisibility, which make a kind of a neat power or natural kind of mon- men and monster section. Um, you talked about the dead senses, Jen, where that inward focus, not only is it for training purposes, but it also is something that allows them to utilize technology in a way that isn't obvious, right? It's kind of this blending of magic and technology, because in order to safely matter transport, you have to keep a hold of yourself. And that's easy for Wiccans to perform because they're trained in it. And it makes me kind of think of, well, how do you do that if you're not trained in it? You know, what is the procedure? Do you drug yourself? Do you go through this other step in order to do that? And and that's why the glittering man is there because he failed, you know, miserably in doing that, which I thought was kind of a a neat concept. Yeah. I, I, I kind of wrote this one down, but it's, it's kind of the amusing one where they go into the scrying, you know, and they're saying, okay, let's go scry on what's going to happen out there. Oh, let's get naked to make it a little easier because that's what happens. You know, this, you know, being naked, being more um, ritualistic about it is something that DCC talks about to a certain extent. But you could certainly say, well, this is one way you could enact that ritual is take these Wicca concepts you know, where you have to have a triumvirate or you have to have a group of Wicca performing like this. Sky clad, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think these are great sort of source books for how you do this, um, you know, as a judge for your, your players or your players if they want to get ideas. I thought the soul painting, which they called the Dwim Dight, I think. Oh, yes. Um, which is where this recurring vision of stags and dogs chasing a man and they realize that that person's themselves. It happens to Sam. It happens to one of the FBY men, maybe. But it's also this concept of this is something you only use in the gravest of emergencies because it's forbidden by our order's law. Because so, it harms. Because yeah. it harms, right. And and so that got me thinking a little bit about clerics are very broadly played in a lot of ways. You are a cleric of this god. You are a cleric of you know law and order. You're a cleric of Cthulhu. 
but what if certain acts are prescribed, you know, and, and how do you deal with that as a character? And, and I thought this was a kind of a neat hint, right? It's, it's again, just hinted at because it's, it's probably deeply researched on Margaret St. Clair's point of view and presented, you know, as a sort of fact of Wicca. But this is a, a, something you could bring to a game to say, how do you deal with a type of religious sentiment that you, you have to, you know, to work with in your day-to-day adventuring? Touching on that, I, I think that's a very important way to allow players to differentiate their clerics. Yeah. In DCC, it's broken down by alignment, and and so there's a difference there in what they can hit with Turn Unholy. But beyond that, it's really just the name of the god they worship. I think the idea of putting down basic tenets or strictures for some of the various gods and giving them that extra flavor could be really great. Yeah, that's kind of one of the things that it, this, I mean, she puts a lot of structure into this version of sorcery or supernaturalism. And I thought that was a great sort of insight to bring to games. Uh, a couple of other ones that, again, is sort of like how she wraps up her books. It's very sort of, Sudden. okay, suddenly I have, I have the power and I'm going to summon the pattern of this power from Crete. And, you know, we're going to perform this thing called the bull leap, you know, which is I displace this other consciousness, which it's a very sort of ancient concept. But I I think it's something that DCC has a version of in some of the spells, but it's, it's pretty well described, I think, here in some sense. And I think it's even called by Sam, you know, he says that I could only do this once in a lifetime. Right, which is which sort of makes it a very unique thing, and and maybe you sort of bring that to a game context as well. You know, what is the price of calling upon this sort of DCC's equivalent power in taking over somebody's consciousness and shoving it aside? Well, yeah, there's the there's a limitation to what you can do as a as a magician. Maybe that's corruption. Maybe that's just you, you're burning stats. But you, there's another narrative way you could describe that as well. I, th- I think I called on some of the magic items, which are really technology-based. I love that idea of the what I think I, I wrote down, trace receptor. I think, Bob, you well, called it. Well, they said it, it was know, like a, a, a you know, manometer. The, trace receptor may very well be what it was. Yeah. Finding the names of these things was tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I, lo- I, I love that idea. It's that you're following the, the new type of DNA the, uh, that's left off by just the contact with the people of the air and the and surroundings. And that's how they're able to, to find anyone. It's, it just makes it a very sort of paranoia a very dystopian, very Brazil, very 1984 sort of concept where they can always watch you, right? And and they always have a way of reaching you, which makes it very sinister and scary. And I, I like that sort of as a way of driving the characters to how do they react to that? You know, what can they do? You know, in, in, with that knowledge, you know, that they can, they're, they're being found by just their very bodies. Is there a way around that? I think I, I kind of like that as presenting that to the players and seeing how they solve Ooh, it. Oh, yeah. It would be kind of fun. We touched on this earlier, but yeah, I love the matter transmitter. I think that was a, a really neat introduction of that technology, how they deal with it from a, like I said, a blending of magic and, and technology. The little idea of there's a middleman who's like the way station, you know, that you can get lost at. I guess they, they were going to send him to the moon, apparently, you know, which is, <laughs> which is a great idea. <laughs> so I, I love that one. It's almost a little bit psionics, too. Yeah, Because it you is. do have yeah. to put your brain in a certain state. It sort of resolves the issue that I've always had with the Star Trek transporter. People are like, oh, transporters would be great. I'm like, really? Because, you know, you get murdered and a duplicate shows up in your place. <laughs> and, that's, and that's even been reinforced when an original and, and a duplicate met on the next generation. Right. And it seems like the in this, the Wiccans are really focusing to transfer their actual consciousness with, right. as opposed to duplicating it. Right. Otherwise, you end up with a body without a consciousness is what's important. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was neat. What else was it? The Decker the Dog. I love sort of NPC creature. 
And the reason that he's there as a guide is he has apparently double brains. Right. And that's what the FBI are also trying to do within themselves to attain the wick of power artificially. It's a science fiction concept, I think, that that's echoed in a lot of other places. But, you know, the way it's done here is presented as a dog who's got a you know, double brain. And then, you know, the FBI, FBI are doing something similar. It's experimentation. And uh, I, so I love that. Science versus the wonders of religion. Yeah. and But I, I love that idea of the animal that communicates as an animal but has this deeper intellect and we you know like you know we've seen that somewhat in um Hyro's journey and, and things like that that you don't find out the truth until they you actually get into the telepathy aspect right there's a lot i think that's stat worthy and, you know, and usable food for thought and usable in invention yeah. right yeah so rolling over into the props if you have a dog uh, go ahead and bring him into the game let, <laughs> let people right. wonder put a bow tie right. on him Right. So for props and audio, I've got to say it was very interesting how everybody outside, like the core three or four characters that we dealt with, they were terrified if you were holding a vial or a bottle or a jar because you might have a yeast sample in there. You might have a contagion ready to happen. So uh, put out a couple jars of miscellaneous stuff. Just buy some yeast. It, it, nice and simple. <laughs> Yeah. If you do that, I would recommend not the rapid rise, <laughs> just to avoid any problems. For audio, see, I find it very interesting that 1963, the chart toppers were the chiffons, the beach boys. You know, th that was the prevalent sound. Even Puff the Magic Dragon wasn't in the top 10 that year. So I don't know what the hell these people were smoking. <laughs> Oh, we know what they were smoking. We just don't well, know what they were listening to. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I have to admit, thinking of the areas underground and the way they were described as being laid out and having been fabricated down there, actually, I, I felt like I was just transported to the movie Dread. You've got all of these cookie-cutter rooms, and they're always the same, and the lights are always on. And so I, I was just kind of hearing that soundtrack and kind of the, the Matrix soundtrack as well, as, as he's just blindly running and, and trying to find where he's supposed to be going. And interestingly enough, as I was putting my part of the show notes together, Kaleo came on with the song, Way Down We Go. And I'm like, yes, yes, that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I guess I'll go. It's a, it's made me think that if you're with friends and in a safe place, this is definitely the game session to break out your hallucinogens and <laughs> <laughs> it's a trick party. <laughs> and really, really enjoy enjoy the, the the gaming session that will ensue. If you well, there remember, goes, there it. goes our parental rating for this episode. <laughs> Mark encourages illicit drug use. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it'd be kind of a neat idea to sort of play off the distance that humanity has adapted to have everybody change into the same clothes to get this sort of sense of uniformity, provide tins and rations. You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, canned food is that that's going to last for 50 years. Well, you know, that's, that's time to break out the can openers and sort of get into your, your seven year old stockpile of whatever's in your cupboard. God. <laughs> <laughs> but then, but more interesting is, you know, somehow you make a game mechanic where you're playing off that trauma, the personal contact, you know, maybe we oh, you, you do something where you, the players can't talk to each other. Or but if everyone around really small tables, so they have to sit very still close knee to knee, and, oh, and they, God, their, no. their elbows are bumping <laughs> each other. Make them make personality checks in order to communicate. Otherwise, they have to communicate in signs. You know, make them carve in signs oh, of love, labors, things like that. I thought that maybe you could kick off an adventure by having a disease, like something that reduces your personality 
to the bare minimums and, and you make people react to that and it becomes a quest for it. Find the cure for your personality so that you can recover it. So, you know, that would affect, especially affect your clerics and the, in oh, yeah. your kith, I guess, you know, if you had those those kind of guys. Well, so. well not only that, and, and then you'd be dealing with not only the way people are reacting to you, but the way that you're going to react to people. You could easily snap and kill the person that is going to give you the cure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you could do a lot with that, I think. So I took that idea as, as sort of like, that's the sandbox to run with. And from the first part of the novel, like you said, John, as far as, you know, what it made me think of, I thought a lot of the old Disney movies, like Escape to Witch Mountain and The Cat from Outer Space. And I thought those would be good. I love the Witch Mountain movies. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I thought those would be good to just get in the sort of same vibe of the mysticism versus the government that's trying to capture it or the cat from outer space, you know, trying to be acquired because it's got some capabilities that are, are, are wanted by the government, you know, the big monolithic government. I, I just, those are playful movies. And I think that this sort of reminded me of that sort of, in, in a way, innocence. I don't, I don't know how to... And our younger listeners could watch that classic old movie, E.T. <laughs> that's, that's true. Which, which also has that very same vibe. It's yes, the brain but... powers and the, the omnipresent government. Yeah. It's... <laughs> yeah. What about you, Bob? Right off the bat, I was thinking, if you're going to have people over to play this, serve either brightly dyed mushrooms or put out a spread with, like, Broca flour, things that are, are familiar and safe to eat, but strangely <laughs> colored. Because I kind of liked the, the, the concept of the fungus. You know, if you don't just rip the whole thing out, you just keep coming back to it. Trim it, it'll keep growing, it'll keep growing. And so okay. veggie trays are so easy to do. That was pretty much what I had for props. Let me tell you, um, I, I wasn't going to I wasn't I had going a jar to suggest- of yeast. Come on. I wasn't, I wasn't going to suggest the brown acid or the blue acid, <laughs> peyote, or magic mushrooms, but they are a fungus and we are talking. Anyway, um, <laughs> moving on. We'll, we'll leave my, we'll leave my misspent youth out of this. And I really like Mark's idea of working to make the players physically uncomfortable with proximity to one another. That is, I think, something really worth exploring for music. Yeah, I okay, wasn't hit us really... with the obscure stuff here. Well, that's the thing. It was, I mean, this was 1963, and the music that I could think of that I really felt was appropriate was not from 63. Certainly, I thought some of the songs from the soundtrack of Hair would be appropriate. They had that very counterculture, flowing, joyous vibe. Really, this this book needed to end with something that had that joyous vibe, and it didn't. Um, <laughs> so you're subbing it in. Got it. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm sub- okay. substitute. Also, the early works of artists like Jean-Marc Auger, uh, his works like Magnetic Fields, Oxygen, Klaus Schultz's mid to late 70s works, Cyborg, Dune. They're all that proto-electronica prog, you can't even call it prog rock, it's just sort of Prague. It, it's what would grow up to be the Matrix soundtrack. No, it, but, <laughs> but it's it's not. It's more like what would grow up to be Disney's journey into inner space. Kind of those trippy bell-like tones and, and electronics okay. moving through it. Very, like, 1970s sci-fi dream sequence music. If you want to get more literal-minded, I mean, there is the pagan goth band uh, Incubus Succubus. Okay. And they've been around since, like, 89. <laughs> and in the 90s, they were recording some actual Wiccan chants and songs. 
as well as certainly some more you know goth style music but there there are pieces out there that are absolutely gorgeous that are Wiccan reads and you can listen to them and certainly would make great background for any adventure that you want to tie into Sound of the Labors. Okay. We've got some stuff to stat. We've got some hints for things to put at the table or atmospheric ideas, creepy as they may be. Some things that are already out there, existing DCC stuff. What do you got, Mark? This one, I think right off the bat, I, I and I don't think this is very familiar to many people in the audience. It was something that was run by Matthew Guyfon at North Texas RPG 2015 called Super Number One Food Tower. Huh. And it was self-published. It was an a, amazing sort of condensed adventure on, I think, maybe two pages, maybe one page, where you're in some sort of, I would call it Japanese game show mega dungeon. Maybe it's a good way <laughs> mm. of describing it. <laughs> and it was, and it's just, it's just very super fun, uh, hence the, the name. Um, but if you can get a, a copy of that, uh, definitely, uh, you know, or reach out to the author. I think he's limitedly on G+, but you might be able to find him via that mechanism just to see if you can get the PDF. Really, really neat little adventure that sort of echoes the idea that you're popping into a new level. And it's just completely different than the last level you saw. And it's inheriting a lot from the game show aspect, the technology aspects, the techno wizard aspects. And uh, it's it's very fun if you get a chance to, to see it. Black Sun Deathcrawl. Oh, this man. is Black Sun Deathcrawl. Yeah, this is this is very much made me you stole my first that, choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by James and George. You know, we've talked about that one before. Obviously, there's there's some heavy dystopian elements in that to the point of there is no future for humanity and you are just crawling to avoid the end as, as long as possible or as long as you care to. So bleak. What, yeah, so what, bleak. <laughs> one of my favorite quotes was that nobody was at the other end of the phone line and nobody ever would be. Right. Yes. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are a couple of Harley Stroh either written or curated adventures. One being his Pits of Cesarecon series that he ran for the first Epic oh. Funnel tournament for Gen Con. Yes. Which you know I think there were seven pits in his version, and there's several of them that are published. One you know was in the DCC Core Rulebook, if I remember correctly, and then the other was in Gen Con 2015 Program Guide. The Core Rulebook had the Infernal crucible of Cesar Khan the Mad. Maybe that wasn't related as one of the seven pits, but you know, he certainly it sure seen, could be. <laughs> yeah, sure could be. And I've seen I think three or four of the other levels. And so it'd be neat for him to put that all together as sort of a mega dungeon, right? Because it's got a very unique feel. It needs to be represented in DCC, you know, which I think to a curious extent doesn't really have a mega dungeon. There's not really an adventure you can point to. This yes. is the kind of example of DCC doing a castle Greyhawk or White Rock Castle or, or so things like that. Hell. Maybe, yeah. maybe, yeah. I, I should maybe. say yet. Yet, yeah. yes. And the, we'll get the, there. The other one that it made me think of was the Gen Con 2017 tournament, The Black Heart of Thakalon the Undying, which had a mega dungeon quality in that there were three completely separate levels that had hidden passages between them. And it was very much a intention to be run over multiple sessions obviously as part of a tournament it was run over three rounds but you could take that published version when it gets published um next year which is i think the intent of the of joseph goodman and run it as a complete dungeon that your party can go through so that nice. that was another one that maybe wish we had something in place but it may be coming down the road there are a couple of other ones that uh one that it's not a dcc product but it really made me 
want to run a DCC version of it, which is the Anomalous Subsurface Environment by Patrick Wetmore. And it was designed originally for Labyrinth Lord, but it has a very sort of self-described DCC feel in my sen- in my mind is it's you know, it says it's taking place in a dinosaur and wizard infested future of the earth, which, oh, you know, that's not your alley at all, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's a mega dungeon, you know, in, in that sense, but it's also a very blend of technology and magic, which, you know, I think there's been people who've run it as DCC and in, including somebody we will get to in our feature for this show. I, I, I think the author that we're going to talk about doing that feature actually ran this as a DCC conversion. So maybe he's getting some experience from that. Um, but that's mm-hmm. that's supposed to be a, a pretty neat set of of dungeon crawling. Then finally, a special call out, and I've done this before, but Messieurs Victor Garrison and Forrest Aguirre, their <laughs> uh, 2016 Gong Farmers uh, series of articles called What's This Crap? A Self-Generating <laughs> Crud Toolkit, um, which is their grand catalog of cephalic corrosive cruds. So it's it's full of fungus and slimes and molds, and it's very in tune with the idea of yeast and plagues and and what happens after maybe they evolve into self-willed creatures of their own. So definitely check that out. Nice. What about you, Bob? I'll echo your idea of the Seven Pits of Cezercon, the first funnel tournament. It sure felt like a mega dungeon. I mean, I never saw the maps or anything, but uh, but it certainly felt like one. And I think it set a really good mega dungeon tone in that there was these different places you could go and they, they all had sort of a different environment. And I think that's really what makes a good mega dungeon. It's not just that you've got 500 rooms that are all perfectly bricked hallways with perfectly formed rooms and they're all just the same people. A good mega dungeon has its own environments and special sections. And I really think that the first tournament module really hit that note. This year's probably does as well. I just didn't get a chance to play. (laughs) Be murdered by my wife while trying to exit the first room. (laughs) (laughs) also i thought that if you wanted to be truer to the setting of the book you could take either mutant crawl classics or umerica and tone them back to a more 20 minutes into the future max headroom style start So you start with that kind of strange, familiar dystopia and then build from there or use it as flashbacks. I like doing interlude adventures. I I think that players are more likely to remember your game world's history if they've played it as opposed to having had it read at them. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so if you can give them an adventure for MCC or America where they are playing part of whatever great disaster that you're using for your setting, it's going to mean more to them. And then as new players join your game, it becomes part of the oral tradition then because now they are passing on their knowledge, their memories of that further down. I think that both have sort of their their pros and cons for running a game wrapped around this novel. Umerica definitely tends to be a lot more well, let's face it, Umerica is a lot more gonzo. Um, Mm -hmm. You can be killed by a mailbox. Uh, (laughs) And a lot of ways that's rather cool. Uh, And uh, uh, Umerica's got a lot of really neat stuff going for it, but it tends to be a little bit more 
outlandish. It, its aesthetic is less commandy and more thundar, and so its, its directions are a little different. Right. So you could certainly do this with Umerica. You, you probably wouldn't take it as seriously, and that's fine. I mean, like Mark mentioned, there's certainly notes of uh, Brazil in here, and for Umerica, you would take those and probably use those more as tones of the game Paranoia. Um, yeah. MCC, which tends to take itself a little bit more seriously, certainly fits the overall vibe. It's dark. It can be very serious, but it also Kinda relies depends on the judge. I think. Well, but M- MCC, I'll go. MCC is written when you read th- when you read through the core book takes itself pretty seriously, and when you look at its inspirations, they also take itself take it very seriously and so i think that that is sort of the strength for mcc but also mcc draws on a lot of it is is rooted in concepts that really didn't even exist at this point and mcc really would be so far separated from this normally that transitioning from an adventure in this story to mcc it's going to take more steps or it's not you can't just run one and then into mcc the logic train wouldn't be there you would certainly need more steps mcc's ancients were far more advanced than the than the people here but right. both and both systems themselves work very well for this that argument is one reason why i actually didn't list anything from the purple planet on my list of existing you know throwbacks oh there's certainly a lot of fungus well yeah <laughs> but i i was trying to avoid the obvious gimmick i mean i, I thought i pretty much did that with black sun death crawl Bleak. <laughs> Bleak. Uh, love it. But I have the Infernal Crucible of Cezarkon the Mad on my list because of the feeling, and, and especially with Kira's position in mind, curiosity or even doing a favor is going to trap you. Even Sam, well, they, they made him curious about this, so he started trying to get down to level H and trying to figure out, okay, well, who is this woman that they're looking for? And uh, at least through part two of the book, it kind of screwed him. I also had the Sinister Sutures of the Semstress on my list, because there's a mechanic in that particular module where you begin losing your grip on your stability. I I won't say it's a sanity check, but It very well could be, and man, with all those trips, I felt like I, Jen, the reader, was losing my grip on stability. (laughs) (laughs) Just as poor Sam was losing his own, as the longer he was exposed to that level and all of the pharmaceuticals and everything else. And stepping a little outside of the box there, I'm going to bring up DCC Lankmar. Yes, you're right, it has no real place here, but there is a scene where he steps into a room that is filled with what looks like a fluffy white carpet with bunches and and just mounds in weird spots, and it turns out to be a sea of white rats. And the moment he moves in and anything else takes motion, they kind of begin attacking themselves. And it was just one of those, okay, this is a scene we would be terrified <laughs> to see <laughs> in in Lankmar, especially after uh, some of the particular adventures we've played in the campaign and, and whatnot. And 
If anyone's read a few particular Liber stories, yeah, that's going to creep you right the hell out. Pretty cool. Another one I'd been thinking of was this Halloween's adventure, Shadow Under Devil's Reef. When you're talking about things that build the longer you're exposed to them. And mm. as, you're, as you're moving through the adventure without giving a whole lot away, there's a whole lot of fortitude checks. And yeah, things, yeah, there things were. build up, you know, and you're not looking at random results. You're looking at a table that goes from one to two to three to four to five and builds up as you go, as as you make these failures in these tests that get gradually more and more difficult. It did not go well. Um. You guys, you, you, uh, you, guys, you guys succeeded-ish. Ish. Um, uh, it's, but it's it, a that seems to be a great, great adventure. theme for Goodman's Halloween modules, too. Slow Creeping Doom? Yes, yes, it was a very, very solid theme. Yes. Um, but John Hook's Halloween Adventure really does deserve a special call out here, I think, because just the language in it was. He outwrote wonderful. Margaret St. Clair, yes. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's apples and oranges. I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's Lovecraft and St. Clair, that's Asimov and St. Clair. They're just very, very different. But his language, the prose is well-crafted without being overly florid. It captures the vibe really well. And hopefully, as I was running it, I was able to convey that feeling of just building doom that runs through the adventure. Because as a judge, it's laid out right there for you. Well, building doom is uh, always a good solid stance for an adventure, right? (laughs) But I think that's going to bring us to our DCC feature for the show, which is the soon-to-be-released product from the Hydra Collective, Operation Unfathomable. Huge, huge thanks to Jason Schultes. And we are very much looking forward to the DCC translation by Mr. Paul Wolf. Yay. Yay. Bob, would you like to read us about that? Operation Unfathomable details an environment suitable for adventuring for characters of level one and higher in the vast and mythic underworld. A simple retrieve the item mission is provided to get the ball rolling with a minimum of muss and fuss, but the setting can function as a subterranean sandbox where players set their own agendas. Just by entering the underworld, the players may run afoul of factions that will hound them to the ends of the earth, or they might establish allegiances capable of pulling their asses out of a fire or two down the road. (laughs) Within this book, you'll find characters, creatures, and deities in several factions and with distinct motivations. These beings occupy unusual physical spaces, wherein you can stage set-piece battles or provide opportunities for PCs to cower when they desperately need to avoid detection. Beyond the initial hook, there is no plot except what emerges from play. Nice. And it is not lost on me that Underworld is capitalized and really carries the St. Clair theme here. Right off the (laughs) bat, this is not a traditional mega dungeon. This is not 20 to 30 pages of maps with 100 rooms each to, to slog your way through. It's more of a subterranean setting and dungeon rolled into one. So it's more of a non mega dungeon, mega dungeon, but it captures that feel of St. Clair's strange underworld. Yeah. And and we do get more fungus. Yay! <laughs> there, oh, there's fungus. But in Sun of the Laborists, they could enter a level filled with like well-heeled VIPs and go to the movies and go to the park. And there's a psychic 
dog and a river and a beach. And then you, you turn the corner and there's these cramped corridors filled with mad scientists who are genetically engineering, you know, killer rats and mutant things that uh, can eat anything but organic matter. And I think that Operation Unfathomable makes it possible to actually capture that strange feel in a more fantasy setting. I really dig the preview materials we were able to look at. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a good fit, too. Yeah, it, it is. And this one was successfully kickstarted. And I think, like you mentioned, one of the stretch goals that was achieved is that this will be converted to DCC I mean, by Paul Wolf, who's done a lot of other DCC work and some of them that we've talked about. But it's neat that this is getting the DCC treatment and presenting a world or a setting where you can you know, recreate the elements that we saw in this sort of the future technology magic versus different levels that you can encounter anything, right? It just opens up that possibility. So Right. I mean, conceptually speaking, to me, this feels like if Doug and Wayne were to create a, a mega dungeon for DougCon, <laughs> this is what it would feel like. <laughs> you wouldn't have all of these hard set instructions of okay you know these, this quarter is 100 feet and then it t branches you would have kind of a rough map with certain locations that are meant to be explored in there that you can use and reuse um daniel j bishop has his uh, raven croaking blog mm-hmm. and back in 2013 he did a trio of essays and they tackled the problem of a DCC mega dungeon because he was thinking of of doing one for publication back then, and I I don't know if that ever moved forward, you know, if it's still moving forward or not. But his recommendations for a mega dungeon for DCC is that it needed persistent locations, opportunities, and player initiated quests, and. Mm-hmm. This hits all three of those notes. It has some very different persistent locations that are imaginative and and wonderful. There's an opening opportunity right off the bat. It comes with a little quest, and there might be a few others, really, in in the completed text. And then there's a lot of open-endedness, so you can, as a judge explore this so this is sort of the postmodern mega dungeon in that you don't need a thousand pages of text to give a judge something that will run as a mega dungeon you don't have to fully stat castle greyhawk anymore i think with the descriptions that we've got the default platform is for swords and wizardry that's what it was kickstarted as but i really think it's written well enough that Paul Wolf might only have to tweak some of the stats. I don't think there's a whole lot of flavor that has to be changed to make it suitable for the DCC crowd. I agree. And when you look at how much art is there from Stefan Poke, it's going to look familiar to DCC players. Which is also a plus. Uh, (laughs) And one very poignant rumor at the very beginning if you hang around there too long, you'll be forever changed. And I think if nothing else sums up how well this matches with this book, yeah, there we have it. <laughs> well, if I recall the details of the Kickstarter correctly, it did well enough. There was a secondary book, essentially, above ground. And huh. Odious Uplands is what is above this weird, strange underworld. So there's so much here, but rather than trying to confine it all into a very solid structure, this comes with a little player's map that comes with the starting scenario, and it's a wonderful toolbox. It is Mega Dungeon as campaign setting, but it doesn't have to be a campaign setting. It's also meant to be something that, in theory, you could go back and forth between. You could go into the overlands and back down into the underworld. They describe it as it's not a down-the-ten-foot-hall-kicking-a-door affair, and I think that 
for DCC's first mega dungeon, for the first mega dungeon that is going to have a DCC logo on it, this fits the style of the do-it-yourself community that has sprung up around DCC. This is Kovacs and Snyder. This is Forrest. This is Jarrett. This is everybody that's out there creating really neat and, and personal stuff that is going out into the community. This is sort of a culmination of that movement into a mega dungeon, and I'm really excited for this release. And fits Appendix N as well. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good I, call. I, again, thank you to Jason Schultz. He'll understand. Yay! Thanks. So, road crew. Well, we have some road crew. We have some road crew shoutouts <laughs> to do. We are the keepers of mysteries. So, who are the guardians of secrets? You can be. Our community events page has gone live and events are starting to filter in. Send us your upcoming events for inclusion and once you have submitted a few successfully run events, you will be inducted into the roles of the Guardians of Secrets. Able to enter your events directly onto the calendar. Members will periodically receive exclusive items for their tables, such as this year's free RPG Day Companion and other secret benefits. Right now the calendar for December is empty. I'm working on it. <laughs> we know that there are games going on out there, and we want people to be able to find them. So send us your events. M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. And join the Appendix N Book Club of New York at Mia's Bakery on November 29th for their discussion of Abraham Merritt's Burn Witch Burn. Uh, that was moved from November 4th. And December 9th, they're going to be discussing... Uh-huh. Uh, Margaret St. Clair's The Shadow People. <laughs> Good luck, guys. Uh, love you. Find Judge Jeff Goat or the Dungeon Crawl Classics NYC group on meetup.com for more info, or simply be at Mia's Bakery at noon. And don't forget to tune in to Jeff's project, the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. Jeff Bernstein continues running DCC RPG at Games Plus and Mount Prospect, Illinois, my old FLGS. You can find Jeff online or check with the store for more details. Friend of the show and guardian of secrets, Troy Tucker continues to run DCC at the Magician's Forge in Northport, Florida on alternating Saturdays. Check with the store or find Troy Tucker on G Plus or Facebook for more information. Timothy Drennan is running a bi-weekly open table Thursday night DCC game at Geek Out in Burleson, Texas. Are you running Red Crew games? Drop us a line to let us know. You can submit your events or creations to us at thehub at sanctum.media or find us on the regular social media sites, uh, either as a group or individually, just never on Ello. Never Ello. <laughs> yeah. Uh, even better, join the Guardians of Secrets and keep an eye out for our future topics and we can definitely include your material in the show companions. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the show, drop us an email, comment on the podcast, help us by posting a review on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help new listeners find the podcast. And uh, let's face it, it's all about growing the community. Be sure to visit us on Google+, Plus. You know, light the watch fires, kick some slime, sacrifice the Dark Master. Go find some Seven. good fungus. <laughs> <laughs> We do hope we've inspired you, and thanks for listening. Good night, guys. Good night. Good night, everyone. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum Podcast. 
Sanctum Secorum will reopen in January of 2018 to discuss Roger Zelazny's Jack of Shadows. The Sanctum Secorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2017.